This episode of Beyond the Jargon was produced on Treaty 7 territory, home to members of the Blackfoot Confederacy, which includes the Bikani, Siksika, Kana, Stony Nakoda, and the Sutina First Nations. Treaty 7 is also home to the Métis Nation of Alberta Region Number 3. This episode was produced for CFUV Radio, a station that is situated on the traditional territories of the Wasanich and Lekwungen-speaking peoples, whose historical relationships with this land continues to this day. You're walking through the halls of an old building that you used to live in. The checkered floors that you would often skip over. The courtyard behind the school that you used to have lunch in. It all seems so familiar. As you walk past the office of the Child Welfare Agency that you remember visiting when you were a child, you stop. You see a boy, head tilted towards the ground and willing to make eye contact with any of the adults in the room. You wonder to yourself if the workers in the office are threatening to write him up for some sort of non-compliance. You're wondering how they've offered to support him. As a child and youth care practitioner coming from care and now working within it, you're wondering if there's anything you can do to change things within the system. Welcome to Beyond the Jargon, a conversation-based podcast series that aims to explore the research topics undertaken by graduate students here at the University of Victoria. Today I am joined with Wolfgang Bichon and Shannon Cherry, both students in the School of Child and Youth Care. This episode in particular, however, will be focusing on the work conducted by Wolfgang Bichon with the help of collaborators Shannon Cherry for a PhD research study at the University of Victoria that delves into the topic of child and youth care workers. A real fear of talking openly. Yeah, I get that fear. And I get what Kyle said, because I've lived it too many times. Lying on the ground, people on top of me holding me down, being in restraint with my face smashed into the carpet. But what was different about what you just heard from Kyle was, it wasn't me in restraint. I was the one doing the restraining. Hey, so welcome to Beyond the Jargon, a conversation-based podcast series that aims to explore the research topics undertaken by graduate students at the University of Victoria. You were just listening to a snippet from Refiled, a podcast conducted by Wolfgang Vachon with collaborator Shannon Cherry that delves into the topic of child and youth care practitioners who come from care but now work within the same systems and institutions that they grew up in. Uh, I would first like to start off by asking you to give me a brief introduction about yourselves. This could include your names, of course, your pronouns, what you do, and where you're currently situated. I'm Shannon. Uh, I live in Toronto with my partner and dogs. 
uh, uh, she, her, they, them, and I'm a school-based child and youth care practitioner. My name is Wolfgang Vachon. Uh, I use he, him, lui uh, pronouns, and I also live in Toronto, Takaronto, uh, Treaty 13 land. Um, yeah, I, you know, I, I like to locate the, the land, particularly when we talk about care, residential care, in that so much of the history of the, the formal care system and the child welfare system has, is, is tied up in, in land and, and who has the right to land. And so I think it's really, really important to recognize that, that the land that I, that I live on, that I work on, um, is land that precedes colonization. Um, Huron-Wendat, Petuan First Nation, Haudenosaunee, Anishinaabe peoples all care for this land. And, and no doubt, many, many, many nations and peoples before there was even recognition. And, and once colonization came, that things really shifted on this, on this, this land. And so, you know, we, we call it Toronto, um, which is sort of a, misuse or a, a re an appropriation of Takaronto, which is a you know stealing indigenous language indigenous uh, words for our own benefit so um yeah that's that's where i'm situated that was an excellent response from both of you and yeah i noticed that for sure in your podcast refiled you did a very good job of self-locating and acknowledging the land. It wasn't just a brief skim over it. This is where I am. It was, this is where I am and this is why it's important. So I guess, yes, my first question would be the basic questions about your research. What is your research project about and why did you decide to explore it? Yeah, so the the research is about, as you said, child and youth care practitioners. So child and youth care is a particular form of, uh, or an approach to working with, with young people. It has a, a sort of recognized parameters. It has training, um, but it's social service work specifically with uh, children and youth. We usually think around the ages of six to, you know, mid, late twenties, but you work with adolescents, you work with infants because, you know, adolescents <laughs> like to have sex and like, create infants. <laughs> and, um, and if you work with infants, you work with parents. And so sometimes you work with people who are in their 30s, 40s, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but we, we think of, of that. And so this, this project was specifically looking at people who had a history of residential placement. So group homes, foster care, child welfare system, uh, semi-independent living, uh, people who uh, were forcibly removed or or had to be, you know, had to leave their their family of origin, and and now work in the field of of child and youth care. So why this topic? Uh, there's not a lot of research around this topic in in child and youth care specifically. Um, you know, it's it's under theorized, it's underdeveloped. There's a lot of assumptions about this work. Uh, there's lots of discourse in popular culture and in child and youth care about lived experience and the value of lived experience and and who is in this work. However, there hasn't been much research about that. So there's a, a lack of research, and so that's that's where this project came from. 
Thank you for that answer. Um, and so then this question would be directed towards Shannon. I was wondering why you decided to join in on this project and become a collaborator in it. I think it was a really good timing for where I was at the time. I had decided I'd been working in the field already for 15, 16 years um, by this point. And, and although I, I was from care the whole time that I've been working in the field, I, I would pick and choose times where I would really lean into that identity. And I had decided around the time of joining this project that I was really going to lean into being from care as part of my identity as as a child and youth care practitioner. And I had just was having a conversation with somebody who knew Wolfgang and was like, I think you, you know, this would be a good place for you to start exploring. And um, it was, and it has been, and it's been, you know, magical, wonderful, everything. Things seem to line, line up really well around this. It's been just an incredible journey for me, just really thinking about what it means to be a child and youth care practitioner who's from care. I hadn't really necessarily connected those ideas so thoroughly um, in, in such a compounding and compelling way. It's really interesting when it happens that you have personal connection to what you're studying or what you're doing. It adds different layers, I think, to the project. And so I suppose then to Wolfgang, when first getting this project off the ground, why was it that you decided to use community arts and the medium of audio to engage with this topic? So community arts is my background. So I come from a community arts theater background. And when I when I first applied to to UVic, I thought, oh, what am I doing? Like I don't I don't know research. I can't do like what like like yeah, I have a master's, but I didn't really do a, a research project. And and under my undergrads in theater, like. What, like, what do I know about research? And and in conversation with with the school of child youth care at UVic, they said, you know, so what do you, you know, what's your theater practice look like? I was like, oh well, I work with groups and I, I listen and I we, we we collectively create, you know, gather stories and then we we turn these stories into performances. And I said, you've been doing research for the past twenty years, Wolfgang. What are you talking about? And and so. I chose the the medium of community arts and and theater in particular and audio drama in particular because that that you know community arts is my is my background and theater is my is my background. In child and youth care, it's a relatively new field. There isn't a lot of research in the field, and so it creates this wonderful opportunity for researchers in the field to start to shape possibilities of what research could be like in child and youth care. And there was very little existing research in child and youth care that was specifically from a, an arts-based perspective. And, and I found that curious because so much of the work that we do with young people is, is arts-based. We, we constantly use art and we use play and we use other um, creative ways to work with people. And when you talk to child and youth care practitioners about research, they're like, Ugh, or you talk to you know, students about research and like, ah, oh, research, yuck, oh, I hate research. And so um, I think research can be super, super fun. And I think audio drama is a way to make research super, super fun. And audio drama in particular, because of a variety of reasons around, around ethics, around anonymity, around cost, around uh, distribution, accessibility, all those sorts of things. Um, I'm sure most of your listeners recognize that 
there's a select few people who go into the library and pull PhD dissertations off the shelves and read them cover to cover. However, we've already had hundreds of people listen to the podcast uh, and it's not even completed yet, right? So already there's people engaging with this material. And I suspect, I don't know this for sure, but I suspect way more people have engaged with this content and this topic because we use audio drama than ever would have had we used a traditional 300, 400, 500 page dissertation. Shannon, do you have any thoughts on that? I, I absolutely agree. I think that um, when you when you think and speak about topics that are important, but you entertain people at the same time, they're apt to want to listen and follow and and connect to on on a variety of levels. And and I think that's exactly what this is: is an opportunity for people to connect to really well developed and thought out research that is very um, inclusive of lots of different voice, um, which is really cool and certainly something that I now consider in my own worlds as well because it's just like such a great way of also thinking about child and youth care practice like we engage with young people and we ask them for who they are and what they need and how we can help them and then we we try and put that into action and this is just sort of a great example of doing that in in an arts-based research grand scheme of things so it's super cool. Yeah, I would definitely have to agree. You found a way to pull people in to a research study. And that's not something that a lot of people can do with regular papers or textbooks. So yeah, um, I definitely enjoyed listening to the audio drama that you created. And so then you ask yourselves three questions in your research inquiry. The first being, what having child and youth care practitioners from care does for and to the field of child care and youth studies? Uh, Would either of you be able to speak to what having possibly similar lived experiences with young people that you work with do to influence your practices as a child and youth care practitioner? I'm happy to speak to that. Um, I was thinking about this question earlier today, and, and, and I realized that um, the idea of parallel lives is an interesting one because I think that the lived experiences and, and the reasons why people come into care and even necessarily some of their experiences in care are very, very different. I don't think these these lives are, are quite parallel, but there are a lot of similarities in, in how you know, the institution responds to you when you're coming into care, what it looks like moving into care, you know, uh, conversations about how most people are, that we know are, are coming into care with garbage bags. And, and so really connecting to the idea that the experiences sort of once you get into care and, and you know, working with social workers and attending, you know, uh, ministry mandated meetings and such as plan of cares. And, and then, of course, this idea of just being away from your parents or origin um, is where the parallel kind of ideas meet, but but less so necessarily about why you might have ended up in care. And um, I think those are the, the parts that are really important to consider around influence because it's within those spaces that we, we sometimes forget about safety, even though the goal is safety. And we forget about care, even though the goal is care. And we forget about love altogether. And those are the parts where, where you can connect as, uh, you know, with your lived experience in a sort of professional way of really just sort of understanding what 
young people ages all the way from zero to 30 have gone through or are going through. Yeah. Wolfgang, do you have any thoughts on that as well? Yeah, you know, some themes came up in, in the research. So the, 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 the research project had two elements, Shannon um, and uh, another group of, of folks were part of working together, workshopping, creating, discussing, collectively generating materials based upon the personal experiences and histories of child and youth care practitioners from care. And there was a, a rotating group of about seven people who were part of, of that. And then there was a second project where I had conversations with 10 practitioners from across Canada. And then based upon those conversations created what what I'm calling season two, which is a whole separate audio drama, completely different than than season one refiled, which is now up. And so season two was was verbatim. And so that, you know, in many ways looks like much more of a traditional qualitative humanities-based research project in that there's transcripts and you have all this material in the transcripts. Now the dissemination is going to be different in that we're going to you know, we've created, we've recorded, um, we're, we're in post-production now of, of another audio drama. But in that, you can start to see specific uh, ideas or, or themes that have come out. And so some of those those concepts around how does this influence your practice include things like, oh, I can identify, right? There's a, there's a heightened level of empathy. Um, there's an understanding, there's a, a sense of, and this, these certainly came out in the creation of, of Refiled, um, the sense of initiating change, right? The importance of relationship and how that relationship can be formed. Although, as Shannon just said, you know, you may or may not work directly with somebody who has a, a, a parallel or similar experience. And even if you do, you may choose or may not choose to share that particular experience with them. And, and yet there is still this sense of identification and, and relationship. And then things like modeling, right? So what, what do practitioners from care model to young people in the system by saying, hey, look, this is, this is an option for you? And so my next question kind of highlights a lot of what you've already talked about. But if you did want to expand, my question to you was then, what can this familiarity or understanding do for the field in general? And then you've already mentioned things like it allows you to ask yourselves about the questions like, am I caring or am I loving? Or it's, it, it offers self-reflection, but would you, would you add anything to that? You know, I like this idea of, of, of self-reflection, and, I, and I, I think child and youth care, like many social service fields, are really in a process of self-reflection, right? And looking at, you know, who are our writers, who are our educators, um, who are the practitioners, and who do we serve, right? And, and are those the same, right? Like, where are the gaps in that? And I think that creating space for practitioners from care adds another level to that. Right, uh, adds other aspects to who is present when we when we understand and we think about care. Yeah, anything you want to add to that, Shannon? 
Yeah, I mean, I think that it also kind of shakes up the status quo a little bit. We've got people who, who've lived through it, who are in positions of some power who can really sort of help identify what programming can look like and help identify, you know, how we engage with young people and what what parts are really important to consider moving through and moving past. And, and that to me is the one of the, the most important parts um, is, is, you know, we're not, our, our status quo is not so great just yet. And, and I, I think a lot of work has been done to, to sort of move into places of more safety and more care and more love. And I feel like certain lived experiences can really support the language around achieving better care, better love, better safety. My next question follows along with the second question posed in your research inquiry, Wolfgang, and that was, what does this experience of having come from care to now working within it do to the practitioners who are now going through or have gone through the system in two different types of ways? Could there be a positive implication or are there negative implications for the workers? Yeah, I, I think that in, in the conversations and in the creation of Refiled, there's this constant back and forth, I think, right around the sense of community, community and a sense of isolation, right? And so this, this, the positive and the challenges are always there, right? There's identification, right? Oh, I identify with, with some of the experience of these young people, um, identify with other practitioners from care. And there's a sense of, of stigma as well, right? Oh, I'm not going to share that experience um, with that young person. There's a fear of sharing that with young people. There's a fear of sharing it with, with colleagues, there's a, you know, consequences of employment. Um, I recently had a call from somebody, you know, practitioner from care who said, you know, I think I should stop putting it on my resume. Like I'm not getting job interviews. And do you think it's because of this, because I'm disclosing that I'm from care, right? And so we had a conversation about that. Right? So that stigma is very real. You know, I think that there are increasing opportunities now. Uh, based upon particular lived experiences and histories, you know, job opportunities, placement opportunities, things like that. And at the same time, there there may be situations where people from care feel pushed into this field, right? Oh, oh, you're from care. You should you should go and do this work because this is your experience. And people have a hard time disengaging. So I spoke with people who are like, I don't, I don't want to do this work. I don't know what else to do. I don't know. I, I wasn't given any other options. I'm not sure I want to do this work. And so there's this constant dichotomy and, and binary and challenge um, opportunity frame that I, that I think many of the people that, that were part of the project express. It's total opposite of what you just said, because you know, that's who I am. Um, <laughs> I, I think sometimes being from care has absolutely minimal to no impact on being a child and youth care practitioner. And I think sometimes we try and find meaning in, in that. And, and I have said this a few times in my career, I've been a child and youth care practitioner longer than I was in care. I've been an adult it's for as long as I have not been an adult. So just time has led to that. And, and I'm, I think in, in all consideration, a child and youth care practitioner's first who is from care. I'm never someone who's from care who happens to be a child and youth care practitioner. And so sometimes I think it, the, the influence is not so in the front. It, it could be very much in the subconscious, mostly sitting where we reflect and less where we act. Yeah, I think like that's a really good point because it makes me think of that quote, you're a sum of all of your experiences. You don't 
have to be this magnified version of one of your experiences. So, you know, even though you did have an experience, it doesn't mean that you are that just because you work in that field. And then I guess the last question you asked for your research inquiry was, is there such thing as a child and youth care practice from care? Would there be use or potential for developing such a program? Yeah, so I I don't you know, sort of picking up on what Shannon just said, I don't think there is currently. I don't I don't I don't know that there is such a thing as a, a CYC practice from care. Uh, and I think partly this is because there isn't you know, much of an existing community here in Toronto, you know, we have, we have groups of practitioners, you know, who, who are really doing a lot of work around uh, racial justice inside child and youth care, an organization called CARE. And, um, and so there, there's really, there's a development of what does this look like? Um, what does this practice look like? How can this practice, from this perspective of racialized, uh, minoritized, Black, Indigenous uh, practitioners of color, form and shape child and youth care? And, and there just isn't that sort of uh, body in, in child and youth care practitioners from care. In the same way that there's not that, that sort of, there's, there's not a, a large contingent of child and youth care practitioners with disabilities who are collectively creating together. And so I think that there could potentially start to be that, but I think that at this point in time it doesn't exist and it would take time to materialize. And so that was it was an interesting question for me to consider because I thought there would be and and I just don't think that there is and those are some of the reasons I don't think there is. Yeah, I mean, I, I, when you're from care, you have the luxury of hiding that you're from care. It's a hidden, it's a hidden identity. You can choose to disclose it or not. And we know that there are quite a bit of people who are practicing with certain lived experiences, and we don't put that. That that's not the primary topic of our practice. Our practice is talking about young people first, not ourselves. So. We, we reflect on who we are and we identify, you know, how, how we need to identify, but we always put our young people first. So it makes sense to me that, that we don't always assemble in, in certain ways, but, but also, you know, we, we've only are now starting to have conversations where people can identify being from care and not feel stigmatized, like can be celebrated. It can, you know, be be classified as a superhero move or um, superpower. Lots of different ideas around being from care that didn't exist even five years ago. So it takes some time for people to feel confident and comfortable in in these ways of thinking and moving out and having conversations about it. So I agree, it's going to take some time um, and more conversations like this. I think that's interesting because. Just my thoughts on if you were to have a separate program, it feels like, you know, you almost miss out on a learning experience and opportunity for everyone involved as a child and youth care practitioner. Because if there's just a cohort of people who have these lived experiences and they keep that to themselves and you're more than welcome to keep that to yourself, I feel like the holistic learning might not be I just feel like you're missing out on some learning that you could be if it was engaged with everyone if everyone shared their experiences yeah I you know I think that there's opportunities for conversations right um there are not here in Canada but in the UK for example there are 
youth work programs for specifically for youth workers who work in the realm of spirituality, right? And so religious youth work practice. Sometimes it's a whole separate stream and sometimes it's an integrated stream, right? And I'm a big fan of it being an integrated stream, right? That, you know, what what does that bring to the larger conversation of youth work when you know, you bring in spiritual practices in youth work in a really concrete, material, manifested way. And so I guess we could start talking more directly about the Refiled podcast. Um, so in this podcast series, you noted some important topics. And some of those topics included the idea of files, um, something you called serious occurrence reports, restraints, ways of care, trauma, and complicity, just, just to name a few. And so my question for you was, why did you base your story around these particular topics? You know, these are the ones that came up uh, in conversation, right? So our process was conversation, improvisation, um, storytelling, writing exercises, and a variety of other drama techniques and research process techniques. Um, and these are these these are the stories that came up. And so these were these were what we created the story about. These are also the spaces where our lived experience runs parallel, right? A lot of people have been involved in serious occurrences, both as a child and youth care practitioner and as a young person from care. And the same goes for the other examples, right? Restraints and ways of care and trauma and complicity. These are all these are all themes that I think many people who have care experience can understand and relate to. And I think they're all themes that as child and youth care practitioners, you can, uh, you've had experience with and can relate to. I think that, you know, link between relation is important, as we talked about earlier. So in several of the episodes in the Refiled podcast, you talk a lot about files. Uh, so my question was, what are files and why are they significant? Um, files are sort of this... Um, chronology of a young person's experience in care. Uh, and, and I think for many people, even before they're in care, it's just sort of this collection of paperwork that is authored by other people about young people. Files follow people, right, in a, in a really profound way, and they inform people. And frequently, files are how a young person is met before that young person is ever met. So you know, if, if you and I were working together, Poon, you know, I might give you a file of Shannon. And before you even meet Shannon, you read this file and you read these things about Shannon that somebody else wrote or multiple other people wrote. And sometimes they wrote them because they're pissed off at Shannon because they didn't, you know, because of what Shannon did that day. And so they're writing from a place of anger or, or resentment or frustration or, or whatever is going on in their life. And so that's going to, it's going to inform you, and it, and it can't help but inform you. Um, they're, they're made to inform you, and they're presented as these objective truths when they are anything but that. Uh, and so we talked a lot about files, and again, it's not something that I necessarily thought would be such a big focus, but it became a, a huge focus because because the story of young people's lives are embedded in these files, but it's a story of young people's lives, not the stories. Yeah, it's really important to note that, I guess the files are really just shaped by one person's experience and then they follow you. So that was one thing I learned from listening to your podcast, which 
stuck with me. And in episode seven, as well, in the Refiled podcast, Cherise, which is Shannon's character, mentions the importance of language when writing files. Why is it important to make files of children and youth strength-based? Uh, strength-based is really considering what a person is great at and coming from that angle in, in trying to understand who they are and trying to find ways to support them. Um, so, so zoning in on what someone is really good at is already a great way of, of boosting self-esteem and, and connecting um, in a way that's really positive. And um, you know, in child and youth care practice, we we work with kids who need our support in most cases, and so we sometimes think about young people from a needs based perspective, and and sometimes that that's okay. But how do you think about needs through strength and and really considering the best possible light and ways of of thinking about young people? It's really important, and it, what's really and why this is really important is because. Young people have access to their files and can read this stuff um, as adults during um, their experience with you uh, as young children. Like there's lots of ways in which young people engage with reading their files and it doesn't feel nice to read things about yourself um, that kind of paint you in a picture that you don't consider yourself or don't feel that way. But also when we really think about young people from a strength-based perspective, we also shift our perspective on those young people. And I think it changes the way we relate to young people immediately when you think of all the wonderful things that young people can do, which is the exciting part of our work. Um, and I, I think sometimes really lacking in, in the way we, we keep files. And as Wolfgang was saying, you know, files are written sometimes in frustration, they're written in anger, they're, they're, they're sometimes used as tools, we put them together and talk about them to use them as tools to support young people, but sometimes they become this venting journal of the various adults in that young person's life. And that stuff should just be kept private and away from, from young people altogether. Because um, it's really, really, really hurtful. And young people in care have been hurt enough already. We don't need to hurt them more with the bureaucracies of care. Whisk Victoria is a small but mighty kitchen gadget store located in the Victoria Public Market. Even though it's not very large, it is packed with colorful and practical items for every level of cook or baker. There is no lack of whimsy at Whisk Victoria. Whether you are starting out, starting over, or just in need of an upgrade, there is a handy something waiting to be found. Visit Whisk Victoria downtown inside the public market on the corner of Douglas and Fisgard, or call 778-433-9184. A study was conducted by an American child and youth care nonprofit called Search Institute, to survey and measure developmental assets of adolescents where data was collected from over 1 million American adolescents in over 2,000 American communities. A 156-item questionnaire that measured 40 developmental assets was given to these youths. Findings have shown that the average number of assets reported by youth in grades 6 to 12 is 18 assets out of a possible 40. Boys tended to report having fewer assets than girls did. Perhaps more surprising is the finding that the average number of assets reported decreased from 21 reported in grade 6 to 17 in grade 12. 
A later study showed the relationship between developmental assets and thriving. In general, the more developmental assets youths reported, the more they were likely to report thriving outcomes, such as school success, good physical health, and overcoming adversity. Given that workers in the field of child and youth care can utilize strength-based approaches that focus on positive development of children and youth, it is possible that child and youth care practitioners can help youths develop in a healthy way. Everything you said I was just taking in right now. Um, this is a question that goes off the script just, just from listening to your responses. So as child and youth care practitioners, are there ways that you're taught to read files, like taking them with a grain of salt? Or are there ways that you're taught to write files? Um, Wolfgang and I had a conversation about this not so long ago, because Wolfgang teaches how to write files in one of his courses um, that he professes. And um, I self-proclaimed, do not keep files. I just don't do it. I do the best I can to avoid it. And, and whatever data I have to collect in files is generally just one sentence. Person was here, period, done. Like if there's nothing else I need to say, unless it's great. Like I'm like, person got job. <laughs> this is really good, you know? Um, and always I share my files with the, the young people I work with. But um, I, I think that part of the, the training, as you're talking about it, the, the teaching comes from listening to Refiled because we can, we can say these things, but Refiled is a raw, raw, raw version of listening to the impact that these files and certain types of files has on the young people that they are writing about. Any thoughts, Wolfgang? In, in my role, so I, I, I teach at a college here. And in my my role, one of the courses I teach, I, I do, I, I teach about files and keeping files and writing files and a particular process called uh, antecedent behavior consequence and possible functions. So it's a ABC charts that, that, you know, that sort of is a record of behavior and what preceded and what were the results of the behavior and consequences imposed and why might that behavior be happening and in this project through you know conversations with with Shannon and others you know it's it really pushed me to you know reconsider right how I teach what I teach and also recognize that that we work in larger systems and you know if you are a student in a placement and you choose not to write files you're you're likely going to fail your placement and so how do people navigate that and negotiate that if you're precariously employed and that, that you know the choices you make have consequences potentially that that can be quite significant for you and your employment as well and so having to try to navigate all of that well it sounds like it's kind of frustrating to navigate the bureaucracy and what's expected of you as a child and youth care practitioner and you know, balancing your own morals or balancing your own ideals for the job. Yeah, I think I think it's hard. And I think it's, you know, this certainly is not unique to child and youth care practitioners from care, right? I mean, we see it, you know, around suspension policies in the school board, around why is it, you know, young black males who are getting suspended disproportionately. And, and so if you are a practitioner who has a awareness of racial dynamics and racism and white supremacy, it can be very, very difficult to work in those systems. And so how do you, how do you navigate that? And who gets the full-time jobs? And if you 
start raising your voice as a black CYC who is on contract work, is your contract going to be renewed? And, and all these dynamics come into play in really, really profound ways. And so navigating that space as um, someone who's there to support people, someone who as an advocate, someone who needs to feed themselves, who may well have their own family to take care of. Yeah, it becomes quite, 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 quite fraught. Do you have any thoughts on that, Shannon? Yeah, I mean, when I was starting in this field, I spoke out and and I received repercussions for that. And I had to make choices often about what I spoke out about and what it looked like and what it sounded like. And now as someone who's enjoyed this field for nearly two decades, I have more voice and more status and I can say things and get away with it when I couldn't 20 years ago. And um, I've been looking forward to it, man. Like I've been waiting and doing my putting in my time because I I don't accept the status quo of our of our field and I and I often have a lot to say but you're right you have to balance there's a lot of balance and and so we we challenge we bring up these ideas about you know files and and knowing that you know even when I'm mentoring younger child and youth care practitioners I don't tell them not to write files I I instead have conversations about how you really think about. Um, files from a strength-based process and how to step away when you're feeling frustrated with a child and never ever write anything when you're feeling angry with a child recognize that you're angry and step away and and connect with your mentors but go back the next day and write about you know the beautiful art that that child did and focus your file on on the wonderful things that Mm -hmm. they've done yeah there's so much to say about that um I was just going to add one thing when you were mentioning status quo and how now you kind of have the power to get away with speaking out and making criticism where, you know, like it's frustrating if you're at a lower level per se in the field, you might have profound opinions and profound things to say, and you might be able to shake the status quo, but unfortunately you have to comply or exist within that framework that has already been set for you to exist in. Add the stigmatizing identity of being from care on top of that or of any sort of marginalized identity. I guess like now that we're talking about ways that we can write files that don't implicate children or youth, I guess that's on the topic of care. On that topic, while listening to Refiled, care was brought up as one of the characters in episode two poses the question, what about care in child and youth care? I suppose many child and youth care practitioners approach and think about care in different ways. For Patrick, which was um, a character played by Sean, who was a collaborator in this project, it stemmed from this tough love approach. But some might argue that that's not what care looks like and that's not what children need. What are your thoughts on the role of care in this line of work and what should it look like to you? What shouldn't it look like? Yeah, I, you know, we call ourselves a field of child and youth care, and it's and it's kind of shocking how little writing and theorizing there has been about care, and that's starting to change now. However, you know, the, the history, you know, I started with a bit of a, a land acknowledgement, and we have to ask, you know, who is being cared for and what is being cared about, right? And so. We, we hear these stories in Canada over the past, well, for the past you know, 300 years, we've heard stories of colonialism. And, and in the past month, we hear these stories of, of bodies being found in unmarked graves and you know, unknown reasons for death. 
And that's that's part of what has been framed as the care system, right? I mean, and, and so I believe that there were certain things that were cared about and cared for in that system and other things that clearly, clearly, clearly did not matter or were not cared for. And so when we think about how do we understand care, what is care in child and youth care, we need to begin by asking, what do we mean by care? And, and we haven't asked those questions in a really deep and profound way in in this field of child and youth care and so part of part of what i you know i hope to catalyze in this project is some considerations of of care right so you know the history of care includes things like love and community and relationship and we see this in multiple cultures that exist within canada you know we see this within many family dynamics we see this within chosen families we see this within you know particular cultural histories that is that is rooted and and deeply care filled and then we also see these institutional examples of of the care system and so you know Shannon and I have had and, and many of the people in the group have had conversations about do we say were people from you know child and youth care practitioners from care do we use that term do we say we're child and youth care practitioners from residential placement do we right because not everyone's experience is care and some people in the project said I don't use the term from care because that is not my experience my experience is not being from care my experience is being in placement, removed from my family, displaced, and experiencing horrendous things that should never have happened to me because, because of who I am, because of my, my biological parents, or because of my culture, or any number of, of reasons, right? So when we think about what does care mean, you know, we need to begin with that. I think there can be a practice of care within child and youth care that is relational, that is interdependent, that's aspirational, that's political, that's ethical, that's emancipatory, and that that moves towards what we think of when we think of care. Um, and, and is in direct opposition to a, a care agenda, which is about eugenics or colonization or, you know, the, the removal of people. When we look at the child welfare system, sorry if I'm getting a bit hot on my mic again, I might be getting a bit, a bit worked up. When we look at the, the child welfare system, we say, OK, well, who is in the child welfare system? Why is it disproportionately, hugely disproportionately black and indigenous children? Right. Why? Why is that? And and we need to say, how are we implicated in that? So that's where we begin the conversations about care in child and youth care. Spend the next hour, hour talking about care. Yeah, that was an incredibly profound answer. And so I guess my response would be to pose another question. I know it's not an easy question to answer, but... Given all that talk about care, in what ways do you propose we can best support children and youth within these systems? I think the very first part of figuring that out is individualized care for young people. I mean, we, we don't have, well, there's no one answer um, and there shouldn't be one answer. And I think that's part of what trips us up is that we look for this one big answer and we forget to not only check in with young people, but invite them to the planning process of developing these systems. Uh, I, I never feel confident, or I, in most recent years realizing I don't feel confident unless I have a young person who I am partnered with having conversations about this in those sort of planning stages. And I think that in itself starts to create care because 
if I say I care about what you're saying and, and I'm, I want to hear and I want to have conversation with you as partners, I think it starts to open up that space for safety and love and care. I think starting by, by listening is, is an excellent place to begin and, and bring bringing oneself there without making it about oneself. So when making Refiled, where do these stories come from? Do they come from personal experiences? Do they come from case studies or things you've heard from other people? Most of the scenes came out of personal experiences. Now, some of the scenes, actually, there's there's a couple scenes that are these sort of fantastical, you know, there's a, there's a scene about trying to go into this space to get your files and being shot at, or there's this scene of climbing these giant filing cabinets. And both of these are, you know, not literal experience that people had. They really represented, you know, the ways to try to talk about these experiences that we couldn't capture uh, based upon a sort of traditional, realistic narrative and trying to capture the trauma of it, trying to capture the anxiety of it, trying to capture the overwhelmingness of it. And so while all the stories come from the, the work, it is, it is undoubtedly fictionalized. This isn't any single one-person story, right? There's, there's bits and pieces of everybody who participated in this, and there's a, there's a history, and there's a wisdom, and there's a knowledge that comes with this, and you can't point to every scene and say, oh, this is, this is Shannon's scene, and this is X's scene, and this is Y's scene. Some you can, and, and others you, you just you can't. But we didn't, you know, at one point in time, I brought in transcripts to start to work with transcripts, or we thought about bringing in other examples, and we thought there's there's we're just so much within the group. We don't we don't need to go outside the group. We don't we don't need to look at other case studies. You know, we actually created two complete seasons, audio dramas. You know, and and we were only able to produce one because of COVID and COVID restrictions, and we couldn't record the other one. Uh, we have not yet been able to record the other one. The other one won't be part of my PhD because. We weren't able to, but it's a completely different story. It's a, it's a fantastical future set story about dogs. The, the, the central character is a, is a talking, narrating dog. And that's, that's the central character of, of, you know, season three, which would may or may not get produced, but, but completely different. And again, but those stories come from the participants. That's excellent. And then how do you hope that these stories portrayed will amplify the stories of young people? When young people can recognize themselves in the stories that exist for the public, they don't feel alone and they don't feel othered the same way. And I think there's great power in that. And, and, I, and I think that, that some of the magic of, of, of Refiled and all the other work that was done is, is it says, it says exactly that, you know, that, that you're not alone. And here are other people who may not have had any experience like yours at all, who are also listening to your experience and having an emotional feeling to it and, and are reflecting on their practice as a result. I think that's just really powerful for young people and old people too. In this project, People constantly refer to the participants as young people from care. And Shannon 
bless her. I love Shannon. But, you know, we wouldn't necessarily, you know, Shannon is not a youth, right? <laughs> like, Shannon's not a youth. But, but there's this, there's this framing of people from care are young people from care. And most people from care are not young people because they've grown up and, and they're older people now. And so, uh, you know, this story isn't necessarily going to be even be heard by young people in, in the care system. Um, this story hopefully will be heard by practitioners. It'll be heard by workers working with young people. It'll be heard by, um, uh, in addition to young people, it'll be heard by students who are entering the field, right? So it, it'll be heard by many, many people. And part of the hope is that people will be, be able to identify and think about their colleagues and think about themselves in, in new ways as much as young people might be able to, to hear their own stories. That kind of bleeds into what I was going to ask you next. So if you have other responses, you can expand. The question is, what do you hope that the audio production will reveal to children and youth care practitioners as well as regular listeners? Yeah, I think for you know, the general public, you know, I, I think there's some really fascinating themes around files, right? That all of us have files, right? Every time you log on to your computer, there's a file. Every time you go to the bank, there's a file, right? Like there's, there's files on files on files on, on all of us as we constantly find out. And so how, how are you informed by your past? How are you framed by your past? How are people shaping you? I think these are all profound questions that go beyond the child and youth care experience and that you know revel the the main character part of what she's going through is a bit of a crisis of faith right and her desire to change somewhat like Shannon was talking about before her desire to change the system and being caught up in that system um and again i think that's something that's that's understandable for many people who go in wanting to to make change or shift things up and realizing that we're 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 all damaged goods right <laughs> like we all we all bring our our stuff and our past and our history and and we're going to have to confront that we often say you know in, in therapy or in counseling right you will walk through the door you will be confronted with your biggest anxieties your biggest issues right if you're a counselor who's struggling with addiction you're going to have a, a person walk through that door with addiction if you're if you're someone who's who has unresolved grief you're going to have someone coming into that door who's dealing with profound grief if you have body image things going on you're going to get someone who who's going to bring that to your face and so in the social service helping fields, we all have to face that. And so for practitioners, it's saying, okay, well, I may not be a practitioner from care. However, I do have these other parallel experiences. And I also want that, you know, there's some conversations about stigma and about isolation and about not belonging and how, how does that impact our colleagues that we work with? So all of those are, are, hopefully part of the, the conversations that will ripple out from this project. Do you have anything to add to that, Shannon? Yeah, the people who put this together are brilliant, wonderful, like extraordinary people. I'm not just talking about myself, but I'll include myself on that list, no problem. And we have a history of thinking that people from care are young and underqualified and, and haven't lived as adults who, who have other intersecting marginalized identities who are overrepresented in the social services, other social services field and homelessness and the justice, uh, youth justice population. 
populations. And so we have these ideas. And here is a group of young people who have survived those spaces and are coming to tell you how amazing they are and have done really great, cool things. And it's it's like, Refiled's brilliant. I mean, Wolfgang is brilliant, but the people who support this whole project are brilliant. And what a great thing to start a conversation about, hey, have you heard Refiled? A bunch of brilliant people from CARE who are practicing in child and youth care practice put this together. And, and let's start talking about that. And what a great way to start the conversation. It's not coming from a place of trauma. It's not coming a place from a place of damaged goods, as, as Wolfgang said. It's not coming from that place. It's coming from a place of empowerment, of beauty, of brilliance, and like passion. Oh, it's coming from all the great places. It's strength-based. <laughs> what impacts do you hope that this study will have on the world or the people that listen to it? One, within child and youth care, I hope it continues to foster conversations about lived experience and starting with residential placement, child welfare, um, care experience, but also other forms of lived experience, right? Um, I hope it continues to foster conversations about identity and the role of identity in child and youth care practice, trauma. How do we bring our trauma into our work? How do we leave our trauma outside of our work? More conversations about trauma, self, history, oppression. So there's all of those sort of elements that I want to continue conversation, right? What does care mean in child and youth care? And then the other area is really about the research place, right? How do we create space for arts-based inquiry, whether that be audio drama, whether it be theater, whether it be photography or cell phone video or painting or whatever medium people are inspired? How can we create more opportunities for research in child and youth care and specifically arts-based research? Because I think it's a it's something that hasn't been done a lot. And I think that there's even some reluctance or dismissal of that approach from certain sectors in child and youth care academic community. And so I really hope that this starts to build some of that capacity and spark some interest in that. Do you have any thoughts on that, Shannon? I think it's a great idea. I think that, you know, art is a really great way to connect with people. You build relationships within your creativity and in child and youth care practice. It's like built in the foundation of relationship and developing relationships. And, and so it's just another fabulous tool in order to do so and, and a tool that young people really connect with. So it's not a bad idea for us old folks to just really consider playing a little bit as well. That's a great message. Um, lastly, where can listeners access more information about Refiled um, and your research? So Refiled, you can uh, go to www.refiled.ca. So that's refiled.ca. Uh, and there you can listen to podcasts. You can also find it on Spotify, iTunes, Google Podcasts. And then if you're really interested in the ac more academic side as well, there's a website, Tuning Into CYC. There, there's a bunch of publications, including like a half dozen, five, five, five or six that Shannon and I did together. So there's, there's a whole bunch of sort of more academic stuff on there. For those of you who are like, how is a fiction audio drama research? I don't, I don't buy it. So you can go to that website and you can read all my academic rationales as to why this is a legitimate form of, of inquiry and why it's an awesome form of inquiry. You've been listening to Beyond the Jargon, a podcast series that aims to demystify the work of graduate students here at the University of Victoria. 
This podcast was produced by CFUV with financial support from the University of Victoria's Graduate Student Society.